The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Well, the conference championship matchups are all set, and it's time to see who will earn their trip to Atlanta. And BetDSI is celebrating 20 years online and has built an impeccable reputation for great service and fast payment of your winnings. And to help you get started with some extra bang for your buck, BetDSI is offering double your money on your first deposit. That's right. Deposit to start winning and get up to $2,500 free. That's double your money right from the get-go. And when it comes to football, BetDSI has every wager you could ever want or imagine. If it's happening, BetDSI will put a line on it. You can bet on NFL, NCAA football, MLB, NBA, UFC, esports, or other global sports, and even bet on politics, celebrities, and reality shows for that matter. You can also bet on games while they're playing with BetDSI's live betting. So join BetDSI today using promo code TAFFER101 and you've already won by doubling your bankroll straight away. That's promo code TAFFER101 to get in the action and get paid. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started, because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. Well, here we are, another week of my No Excuses podcast, and I'm sitting here on the beach, actually, well, a few hundred feet from the beach, looking out my window at the beautiful blue Caribbean here down in Puerto Rico working on my new television show, which I still can't tell you the name of, which is a bummer. I'm hoping next week I can because they're working on a press release, and we're doing six episodes of a new show down here, and it's a relationship-based show, and it's a rescuey-based show. But unfortunately, I can't. I can't tell you much more. But do I have your interest going, Corey? What do you think? Oh, I'm I'm almost edge of my seat right now. <laughs> so yeah, so so I'm I'm very excited about it. It's going to premiere this spring, and we're shooting six episodes. And I don't want anybody to worry because I've been getting tweets and notes on Facebook and emails about Bar Rescue. No, Bar Rescue is not over. There's new seasons that are, are start new episodes that are starting in March. End of February, early March. And then uh, we're going to to shoot new episodes uh, as soon as I'm finished with this show uh, in February. We're doing 12 more episodes starting in February. So right now there's about 24 episodes nobody has seen that will start airing uh, late February, early March. And we'll make an announcement when that is. So there's a lot more Bar Rescue coming as well. Speaking of a rescue, I mean, did you guys hear that Costco is selling a 27-pound tub of mac and cheese. What? And I'm told if 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 you look at it, it's about the same weight as concrete. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And weight is, is a bucket of concrete. And, and I don't know what anybody's going to do with 27 freaking pounds of mac and cheese. But apparently it has a very long shelf life. And if the, the apocalypse comes, Corey, oh. and, and the world is destroyed. That's a good point. All you need is one microwave oven, a generator, <laughs> and a bucket of this mac and cheese. And I'm guessing you're good to go for a long time. I mean, oh, at yeah. least 40 days. Or so. and, and that's a lot of mac and cheese. But uh, uh, I wonder how many of those they actually sell. And they have it in their, I don't know what you call this, the emergency provisions, the uh, 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 
the the disaster section, survival foods. That's what it is, survival foods. So they have 100-day packs and 200-day packs of survival foods. Wow. And they put this tub of macaroni as a survival food. Anyway, so I thought this was the ultimate competition and destruction. So, you know, clearly in my entire lifetime, America has been in competition with the Russians. You know, we, we competed with them in a space program and then in a weapons race. And now we're competing with them for control of Europe and things like that. And the competition with Russia has never ended, Corey, even your entire life, right? Oh, yeah. Russia's been the end. You know, Russia, we got to have more weapons. We got to be faster. We got to be smarter than them, blah, 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 blah. Well, I have good news for everyone. The war between Russia and America is finally over. And the victor is Tesla. CES is in Las Vegas now, which is the Consumer Electronics Show. Right. And it's one of the biggest conventions of the year. And in the Consumer Electronics Show, of course, all of the greatest and newest technologies are here. And when it comes to autonomous cars and robots and all of those things, they're currently driving all over the streets of Las Vegas because this is where uh, CES is. So a Tesla is driving down the strip in Las Vegas, and it collided with and run over a promo bot which is a Russian robot. So <laughs> our autonomous car crushed and destroyed the Russian robot. And to me, that is a technological victory. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, completely. So the two of them met on a dark corner <laughs> in the city of Las Vegas. And the emerging victor was clearly the Tesla. So let's chalk one up for us, at least on the streets of Las Vegas anyway. So people might remember years ago, there was a political commentator by the name of Dick Morris. And Dick Morris was a political advisor for Bill Clinton, who then became a news guy. And and uh, Dick got in trouble and was pulled off television because he got a sexual harassment claim or some type of a, a public statement against him, whereby he was uh, uh, accused of licking women's feet. And he was called the, the foot licker and had a number of problems for a number of years over foot that. Licker. Well, he's been outdone. Because now we have the doorbell wicker. So there oh, is this guy. I saw the videos. This is, yeah, this is sick stuff. His <laughs> name is Roberto Daniel Arayo. He's 33 years old. And he walks up to a electronic doorbell with one of those cameras on it. And he starts licking the doorbell. Now, he didn't lick it for a minute or two minutes or three minutes. This guy licked that doorbell from different sides, different angles, from the top, from the bottom for three freaking hours. Oh, man. So the family, you know, were not at home at the time. However, their children were sleeping inside and they didn't wake up during the incident. But the camera recorded the entire thing. So now the police are out searching for the doorbell liquor. So he must have been pretty delicate with his tongue if he never let the doorbell go off. Well, anybody who can continue to <laughs> something for three hours is probably going to have a very active social life. Uh, <laughs> You would think that that would transfer to that kind of a thing. But three hours, I mean, can you imagine the pleasure that this man must get from the taste of of a plastic doorbell? To no, John, I, I can't. I can't imagine. <laughs> you got to wonder if, if there's a, uh, even a, uh, um, I guess, uh, it takes all kinds. And the good news is the doorbell had a nice shine on it when it, when it was done. It was completely cleaned and I all. I bet it did. Acidity uh, was removed but from it. Yeah, it was a nice, shiny, new-looking doorbell covered in bacteria, but it looked really, really good. <laughs> so Cuba has an interesting thing going on down there. So there's these people who take scorpions 
and they take scorpions and they hold them to get scorpion bites on perf uh, on purpose. And the scorpion bites, whereby they're painful, they eliminate inflammation and are a temporary cure for the pain of arthritis. It's actually pretty freaking amazing. Wow. So there's a whole industry now in Cuba where they're raising these scorpions. They're squeezing the, the venom out of them. They give them a jolt of about 16 volts of electricity, and, and this venom comes out of them, and, and they can do that every once in a while. And they take the venom, they put it in a jar, and they shake it with a little water. And they consume it or they take the full strength venom. And one treatment can be $140. So these people walking around that have really bad arthritis and inflammation, they have scorpions under their hats. And no. they walk around with scorpions under their hats. And check this out, Corey. The scorpions like, like warm, dark, humid spaces. Well, if you put a hat on, the top of your head is warm, dark, and humid. So they roll up in a little ball and they sleep in their hair. Oh, so when they, when they have pain, they pull the scorpion out. They give themselves a little sting. It hurts for a while, and then apparently the arthritis disappears. Pretty incredible. Yeah. Such a thing would exist, and we wouldn't know about it here. You think you could buy that serum or they would turn it into some type of a contemporary medicine. Right. That obviously something like that has some promise. Okay, so this is the, the – I don't know if this is a living hell for men or the ultimate opportunity for women. Now – those of men who are married know that there are times or have any relationship with a woman. There, We know that there are times when a woman doesn't listen to what we're saying. You know, their head's in a different place otherwise. And I got to tell you, there are times that people in our own sex don't listen to what the hell we're saying. They're just not interested in it. Right. This woman in China was diagnosed with a rare hearing loss condition that prevents her from hearing men's voices. So <laughs> this woman could go to a restaurant, sit at a table. She'll hear all the women speak, but she won't hear the men speak. Now, this is due to a, a, a condition uh, uh, that, that only about for every 12,000 cases of hearing loss, one person has this. It's called RSHL, and it eliminates people that, that or it affects lower frequency voices and lower frequency sign uh, uh, um, audio levels. And about 3,000 people have this in the country. Imagine... If your wife had this disease, she has, she has the ultimate excuse. Oh, sorry, I didn't hear you. Sorry, I didn't hear you. Sorry, I didn't hear you. But I was wondering if women would actually like having that disease. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, that sounds like one lucky lady there. It, it sort of does in a sense, but she might be miserable because maybe she actually lives with somebody she wants to listen to. Right. Who knows? But the next thing I saw, which was sort of interesting to me, and I guess this is shocking, but I'm older than some of my listeners are. They took two teenagers, 13, 14 years old, and they gave them a rotary phone, or 17 years old, and they gave them a rotary phone, and they were incapable of dialing it. They tried to push the button. They tried to this. They, tried, they just could not figure out how to dial a rotary phone. And I thought that was fascinating. Has it been that long? since the beginning of rotary phones. But how many of you actually know how to do a rotary phone? Have you ever used a rotary phone, Corey? I'm, I'm 23, and um, I can't say I ever have, but I feel like I could probably figure it out. I mean, just put your finger in, dial it all the way back to the other side, let it go. I don't know. I think I could figure it out, though. Well, I'm not sure. You know, it'd be interesting to see. i got to get yeah. one and bring it. I'm going to test you, and let's see if you can all figure right, it yeah. out. But apparently this is not uncommon. Apparently many, many teenagers today can't use a rotary phone. So lady loses her cat in Michigan. 
two months later, it turns up in Florida. I mean, what are the freaking chances of something like this? And then you wonder, how the hell did it get there? And then how the hell did it, did, I mean, it's 1,100 miles that this cat named Bandit uh, 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 went down to Florida to come back. Now, I get that, you know, Michigan has a cold winter and, and maybe the cat just said, I'm in the hell out of here. But yeah, it's like, screw this, I'm out. <laughs> found and repatriated back to Michigan. And uh, uh, I love stories like that because I'm a cat and dog lover. So anytime they make it home, I think that's a pretty amazing story. And uh, with that, we'll be back in just a minute. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Well, every car comes with its share of stories. How about that ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up a first date or the luxury package you got after a big promotion or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer? While you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with True Car, you can at least find out what your car's worth when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to TrueCar, simply enter your license plate number, and watch how your car's details pop up. Then just answer a few questions like navigation, moonroof, and watch as they bump up your value. High mileage? You already knew it was going to cost you, but now you'll know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. And once you're finished, you'll get a True Car cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. True cash offer, not available in all states. Taffer's back. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. So I've been really looking forward to having Mark Pesci all week. I've been thinking about you, buddy, because as CES comes into Las Vegas and all these new technologies come, and I read an article a couple weeks ago about artificial intelligence that just scared the hell out of me. And, you know, we were saying before we turned the microphones on, the future's a little scary. It can be a little scary. Absolutely. Well, you know, Mark is, is one of the uh, primary developers of virtual reality, really started MIT guy. Yep. Right, learned high tech, went into the high tech space you knew you were going to. Yes. Worked with Apple for a number of years yep. in product development. Yep. Worked with VR in product development. Yep. What other things have you worked on in product development? So I guess a lot of what I had to do, particularly in my early days, was around building computer networks. So we think of the internet as the computer network. And back in the early days, there were actually several competing ones. Apple had one, yep. and there were a whole bunch of others. And I was really interested in making computers talk to one another because I could see that was very much both the future, and I was also thinking in terms of my career that you probably would not be laid off because networks were going to grow. And they did. They went for 25 years before anyone in networking ever got laid off for doing anything. And so I spent the first part of my career figuring out great ways to be able to get computers connected. And then, once we had the computers connected, started to think about, well, what are people going to do with them? And this is where virtual reality came in, so that we can now build these worlds together that can share information with us, that can inform us, that can educate us, all of those things. What excites me about talking to you today is you're sort of a futurist. And your podcast, The Next Billion Seconds, and what is The Next Billion Seconds? So that's a unit of time, and it's around 31 years, so it's a generation. And mm -hmm. it's a really good way of being able to get people to think about the future. So most of us, I will be retired in about a billion seconds, or maybe not. My uncle's nearly a billion seconds older than me. He's still working. But if we have kids, the kids will be grown up and graduated. A half a billion seconds is how long it takes a kid to get from kindergarten through college. Wow, so it's not an arbitrary number. No. 
it's a powerful number. It's a powerful it's a powerful way of thinking about time to help people plan. Where do I want to be in a billion seconds? And I've really started to give that a lot of thought because I'm starting to think about this not so much as the next billion seconds, but what's your next billion seconds? And how can I help you? How can I give you the best advice so you can make the best decisions for yourself, your family, your career in that period of time? And that's very much what the podcast is about. Wow, that's neat. So, so when you started in computers and networking, those were the early days uh, uh, of computer communicating with each other. Now, I have a dear friend who was one of the, the creators of Cisco. Yes. And uh, um, his name is Zane Taylor. And he was one of the engineers who created the initial internet communication systems. Did you ever envision that the, the computer would be so residential, so personal? So I, I, I think I, prob- I probably did because when I was young, so when I was sort of 14 or 15, that was when the very first, what we called the microcomputers, not personal computers, but the TRS-80, which was Radio Shack's yep. computer, and yep. the Apple II, yep. and the Commodore. Those were I the, had a Commodore. So, so, so they, and, and, and we weren't alone, right? That's the yeah. thing. There were millions of people like us. So I think in that sense, the computer had always been personal for us. It was really a matter of then figuring out how to make it personal for everyone else. Now, that was sort of the first part of what I was doing when I was 14. But then when I was in my 20s, I started to understand with networking that there would be ways to be able to connect information together. And there was this idea that had been floating around for a while called hypertext of being able to link information together. And people had sort of tried it, but it had never really worked well. And then this thing came along that I saw in 1993 called the World Wide Web. And the first time I saw it, I, admittedly, I wasn't very impressed with it. And I was like, well, okay, it's nice, but there's not a lot here. And I blinked. And by the time I'd blinked, it had doubled in size. And I blinked again, and it doubled in size. And I remember this is in October of 1993. It's when I was working at Apple. And I went home, and I had a whole system. Because you had, you had to have a very special system to be able to use the web in the early days. And every night, I'd come home, and I would surf the web. And I'm not making this up. At the end of the week, I'd surf the entire web. Because the web was small enough. You could search the entire You thing. could surf every single website on the web. And this is something people couldn't even conceive of doing. Now, there was no search engines no. then. No. So you're typing in your backslash, colon, backslash, whatever. The, yeah. and, and so you had to know the address to get there. Well, people kept the list. There was, there was a list. <laughs> and you could just go down the list. Bing, you know, click on the link. Here's the next site. Click wow. on the link. Here's the next site. And, and you could get to the end of the list. And I was able to sort of stay current as they added new sites until about January of 1994, right? So literally 25 years ago from when we're recording yeah. this. And then the list just started growing so fast that there was no human way that you could keep track of it. And so that was when I was looking. I was like, this is the moment. I remember running around to all of my friends going, oh, my God, you've got to see the web. This is going to be so amazing. And they're like, why? I'm like, watch. So in the beginning, it was really information going back and forth, really data being fed from one system to another. When did somebody like yourself see the monetization of this? Because when was the first business website? When did it really start to become a, a commerce platform? Because it wasn't in the beginning. Well, it kind or of was it. Well, so here's the story. So as far as anyone knows, I was the first person to give a public demonstration of the web in San Francisco, which is the epicenter of the web. So this is, again, January 1994. And you did that. I, I did that. I yeah. brought my machine over, got it all wired up, took over the phone line in the apartment because, remember, we were all using modems yeah. back then. And and I'm giving these demos. And 
showing people the web, not by saying, oh, here, here's this web, take a look at it. They would walk up, they say, hey, Mark. I'd say, hey, what's something you're interested in? Oh, I'm interested in gardening. And then I'd go out and I'd find a gardening website. And I'd be like, oh, wow, you found all this great information. What is this? So you'd get them by getting what they're interested in. Gotcha. Not by showing them this is fancy new technology, but here's what it means to you. Not the feature of the hardware, but the benefit to the user. The benefit. Why right. does it matter to me? I was doing this, and then someone else came up that I hadn't met. He said, I want you to type in, and he told me what to type into the address bar. And it was Hotwired, which was the very first website for Wired Magazine, which was the very first commercial website I in the world. I did not know that. Wow, Hotwired Magazine. So he was working on this. It hadn't launched yet. He's just like... Don't, don't show anyone else. This is, this is a little secret. But he was working on it behind the scenes. And in fact, I then got to test the site as it was being built. It had the first classifieds online, wow. the first advertising online. Now, there were no graphics like today. This was pretty much just words. There were, I think, maybe a few images, but they were very simple images because it would take too long to download a complex right. photo- photograph. Right, back, yeah. Then, yeah. back then, right? Very, very simply done. Yeah. I mean, it would take an hour and a half to download a photograph <laughs> yeah. back then, not yeah. like today. Wow, so that was the first commercial site. Then I guess it just exploded from that point. Well, I think once people saw what they could do, everyone got a crazy idea. I mean, Amazon goes all the way back to 1995, but we forget that Amazon used to only be a bookstore. Right. Right? I mean, you can still buy lots of books on Amazon, but that, we forget that that, that used to be the only retailer, thing. Period. That's yeah, it. That's it. Just yeah. books. And then, uh, then it exploded and became retailing for everything. But I remember when Amazon became, and you've written a bunch of books as I have, I remember when Amazon got up to 30% of all book sales was a huge ordeal uh, uh, then that they could actually take the business away from retail. Yes. So you have seen this industry grow uh, 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 from really just metrics and and data going back and forth to this unbelievable commerce vehicle that creates more revenue than anything in the world. Yes. And I mean, it's now, I mean, what they call the FANG, which is what Facebook, Apple, Amazon, uh, and Netflix and Google, you know, if you add all of that together, it's close to, well, depending on what the price of Apple is on any given day, it's like $5 trillion in value. So it's, we're talking about something that is not just a major economic force, but is one of the largest economic forces that we've got. Oh yeah. And I was doing, I was hosting Fox business last week and I had a bunch of people in and one of my topics was, you know, new business models, the, my pillows, the Bowen and box sheets, all of these businesses, they don't have retail stores. They don't have corporate offices. They don't have distribution centers. They don't have have any of that. All they do is they post their website and they create internet commerce for it. And it's an entirely different business model. It's incredibly exciting. So you're here for CES. Yes. And uh, you got your press passes. I know you got to go in and get a sneak peek. And for those of you who don't know, CES is the Consumer Electronics Show, which is here in Las Vegas every year. And if you want to know what's going on in the future, and all the new products in consumer electronics, this is the show you go to. You've been going to the show how many years? Oh, my goodness. Um, the first year I went was maybe 1992. So you've been going to the show a long time. Because we were doing, we were working with Sega. Remember Sega, vir- of course. video game company, on their virtual reality system back in 92 and 93. I was one of the designers of that mm-hmm. system for them. So, yeah, so we were here showing the product off very privately in a very quiet suite, but bringing the big buyers. So, you know, Target, Walmart, yep. Sears back then. In Toys R Us, and we would show them. So, so virtual reality started back in 93. 
Right. Virtual reality actually goes all the way back to 1968. Wow, the yeah. first time. The very first virtual reality system was shown publicly in December of 1968. Um, Ivan Sutherland, one of the fathers of computing, uh, invented it. And it was such a big, expensive, hard problem that most people didn't follow it up until the late 80s, early 90s, when computing became cheap enough that it didn't take $100 million to build a VR system. It only took a $1 million. And now with phones, obviously, it becomes a lot easier because you have the displays. Everybody has their VR display. Exactly. In essence, with their phone. You know what was interesting to me is I'm a VR fan, and I have my goggles at home, and I'll play some VR games, and I love the tourist stuff, walk through Paris and all those kind of things. I'm surprised that it hasn't become bigger than it is. Well, it's – okay, Here's, there's a couple of things. You're actually asking a lot of a person to completely cut themselves off from the outside world and enjoy a virtual experience. That's a very good point because I can do nothing else while I'm doing that. And so, you know, we think of our smartphones as being an attention suck. Well, VR is that much more of an attention suck. And you have to be super careful because people can't really get up and walk around much if they can't see around them. <laughs> and, and so there's we're turning a corner between what we think of as virtual reality and what we're going to see augmented reality which is going to be something that's going to be more like a pair of fancy sunglasses and so you'll see the world but you'll also see mixed in with it things that aren't there so you might think of them as electronic so you'll add to your experience but you won't take away from what's going on around you wow that's well that'll make it then uh, uh, much more applicable to any situation exactly and it's much harder to do because you have to be scanning the entire world to figure out that if I'm going to put something and it's going to stand on this table over here I have to know where the table is and how high it is so that the computer can place it correctly and so if you think about like the new phones that do face scanning yeah. like the Apple phone which yeah. scans your face these are the pieces of technology that Apple and other companies will need to be able to do this well in a form factor that looks like a pair of spectacles we're still somewhere around three to five years away from that really yeah once that happens and you anticipate VR will explode then. Yes, absolutely. It'll just become part of normal life. Well, I think it's good because people are so tired of staring down into their smartphones all the time. This is the thing that's going to free us from that, although it's what it's going to do is it's going to put all of that data all around us all the time, which is... It's invasive then. It's a different kind of problem. Right. Now you can stick it in your pocket. Then you won't be able to. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be stuck in your head. Right. So you were talking before we went on the air, you were talking about CES... And you blew me away when you said this, that CES has become like a car show. It's probably, okay, so what's happened is over the last three years, as cars have become more and more seen as technology rather than just automotive, just an engine on wheels, but now a computer on on wheels. wheels, CES has become more and more important to the automobile industry, so much so that Mercedes-Benz, is not going to be at the International Auto Show in Detroit next week, and I'm going there. Wow. They're only at the Consumer Electronics Show this week. Wow. So they envision their vehicles as more electronic yeah. than anything else. And the announcements that they want to make, and I went to an actual vehicle launch at CES yesterday. A Chinese company called Byton introduced their first car called the M-Byte, which is kind of, I guess it's a fastback, an all-wheel drive. It mm-hmm. looks beautiful. And the dashboard is a three-foot-wide display. So the dashboard is all display, display, which you know sounds nice, and I, but I'm looking at it, and in all of the press photos, it's turned up to white, and I'm like, you know, in the dark, that's not going to work. Right. It's like you really want night mode on that, and you also have to wonder if the display gets super busy, it's going to distract you from keeping your eye on the road. So 
in some ways, we're seeing a lot of really interesting stuff come out of the new cars from the new car designers. And in some ways, I look at this going, I wonder if that's going to pass safety testing. So as gas engines become uh, uh, less frequent, and yeah. look, companies like Volvo are stopping yeah. to produce gas engines yeah. now. Cars, we use the term electric cars, yeah. but they're really more electronic cars yeah. now. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're, because the powertrain could be a battery. It could be hydrogen. Toyota shut off its new hydrogen batteries today at the Consumer Electronics Show. So we have all these different power technologies that are lining up that all convert to electricity. Even petrol engines, gasoline engines, are now generally driving a generator to run the car, right? Because right. you have it's these more hybrids. about the power, right, than the revolutions of, of, of the engine. Yeah. It's fascinating. So, so when you think about where cars are going in the future, it's interesting you mentioned Mercedes-Benz because I read an article by the CEO of Mercedes uh, uh, about eight, ten months ago about how he envisions the world is going to be different in 15 years because of electronic and autonomous cars. Yeah. So he was saying that, A, people are going to start moving from the central population areas because when you drive in an autonomous car, you'll work, you'll do all that in a car, so commute time won't mean as much. So he feels people are going to start moving farther from the city. He talked about the fact that people are not going to own cars anymore. You're going to pick up your phone, hit a button, electric vehicle pulls up in front of your house, you get in it, you do your work, you do your calls. Yeah. Uh, you eat dinner in a car, whatever it is you do. So that isn't downtime anymore. Yeah. It's completely productive time. And then he talked about the whole demise of this, the mechanics industry, that these are vehicles that won't break very often. Uh, you right. know, the, the idea of the greasy wrench really doesn't exist anymore at that point. And his vision of an entirely different world just because of the autonomic, uh, auto, auto, electric vehicle was amazing yeah. to me. You live as a futurist. Yeah. Do you see the same thing? So we're working on a new podcast series called The Next Billion Cars because we make two cars a second right now. So at two cars a second, that's the 15 years that this fellow is talking about. It's 15 years for us to manufacture, and everyone knows that that car, a billion cars from now, is really different than the car we have today. Here's the problem is that actually the car companies – don't understand what that car looks like yet. And car buyers, I was talking to a fellow, he needs a new car, his car is getting old, he likes it, but he knows it's time to get a new car, but he doesn't want to buy it because he also knows that the car is a moving target right now. And if you buy something now, you know, maybe in five years, it's actually going to be so much different and better. Two years, maybe. Even to, Well, this is the thing, and, and, and you could see him going through this, and I'm watching him going, that's happening to a lot of people right now because we're in this transition point. And the other thing that the CEO of Mercedes-Benz didn't want to mention is if we're no longer owning cars but we're renting them, then we actually need a lot fewer cars. And I don't think any of the automakers are looking at how changes in ownership, changes in use are really going to affect the way we, we, we build an industry around cars. And this is them, in some sense, whistling past the graveyard. Mm-hmm. They all want to make sure that there's a place for them in the future, but we haven't actually figured out a path that gets to a future with them in it. A little scary. It, look, at when you consider how important automobiles were to the economy in the 1960s and 70s, they're, they're less important today, but still globally enormously important. And not just cars, but all of the supply chains that come yeah. into them. You know, so, so if we change that, and we clearly are, because there's, CES is proof that we're changing it. If we're changing that, all of this other stuff is going to have to 
to change around it. So he's absolutely right about that. But the question, I guess, is at the end of those 15 years, does he still have a job? And we don't know that. Don't, that's what's, and, and are there car manufacturers like this? And are all yeah. these different models available? Yeah. And, and I agree. And, and it's fascinating to see that kind of change. And, and, that, and will people feel comfortable using a rental car even if they want a personal space? You know, if you're going to be taking that every day into the office, are you going to want to just summon a new car every day? Or are you actually going to want to have the same car that's got some specific features that you wanted and maybe the right cup holder and who knows whatever else? Yep. So, so maybe it becomes a, 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 a menu of vehicles yeah. that you choose from. Yeah. And it's a personalized type of a situation. But that's been a large part of cars to date is the personalization. You buy a car that is an extension of your personality, and I buy one with an extension of mine. I wonder if that personality disappears. As electronics and computers make us all see the same things and hear the same things and then buy the same things, do we all start to lose our individuality? So we do know that the younger kids today actually don't care about owning cars. It is not yeah. a goal for them, all right? They, they often don't get licenses. They don't. So, so in some ways, the idea of car ownership, because they've grown up in an era of an Uber or car share or whatever it is, that they don't see driving as the pathway to freedom. They may see money as a pathway to freedom because then they can get the Uber yeah. or all of that. But, but a car doesn't mean freedom to them in the same way it would have for you and I because yeah. there was just no other alternative. So we've got to factor that in. In terms of whether technology is making us all the same, we can make two really interesting statements about this. Facebook, and I did a lot of research on this last year before all of the news about Cambridge Analytica and Facebook came out. Facebook has built an engine that's really good at watching you using Facebook, building a model out of that, and then feeding you more stuff that's going to get you to watch Facebook more because that's what Facebook wants. And it had this weird phenomenon of both making you more like other people who were like you, but also making you more different in some ways than other people. So it ended up fragmenting people more and driving them almost into little tribes or camps. Yeah. And so you do tend to be more like the people in the camp that you're in and then less like the people who are in the other camp. And so that's definitely been happening with technology. You know what else I find, and, and, and I'm going to go off track with you a little bit, is one who hires a lot of people. You know, I look at the impact of computers on gratification for young people. Yep. You know, when you and I were growing up, accomplishment didn't happen instantly. We had to work at it, yep. right? The pat of the back didn't happen instantly. Yep. You know, today you can post a picture of yourself in your worst outfit looking the worst you've ever looked and somebody's going to say, you look great today. And you get this instant gratification every time we post something. This is why I didn't post any photos of myself today, <laughs> but you're right. So, so what I find is happening is people are leaving jobs quicker than a younger. Yeah. Things aren't happening quick enough. That instant gratification isn't happening enough. I'm seeing that as a consequence of this electronic universe of instant gratification that we live in. There's, there's definitely two trends there. I mean, I do think that we have become a bit more wired to gratification because there are systems that are capable of, of, of capturing us around that gratification. So I completely agree with you. The other side of it is that, particularly in the younger generations, they're much more tuned to being aware of opportunities, and they will change their path to find the opportunity a lot more flexibly than we did because... We were very much like, uh, you know, and even in my career in technology, I saw this happening where I would basically work sort of between two to three years at a job and then move on to the next job. And that's technology that was sort of average, but that's now come down to, you know, 10, uh, right. 18 months or something like this. So you keep on moving up the chain, particularly in your younger years. 
But if you're working freelance, then you actually have a series of gigs that might be three months or four months, and you're constantly looking for the next gig, and that's a very common mode. And then you accelerate quicker, though. Your experiences are broader and faster, for sure. Yeah. So uh, um, I get scared when I read these articles on artificial intelligence. And there's a lot of people who, you know, are are raising red flags and, and... Talk to me about this. Do, do you worry about artificial intelligence? You know, you, you understand it, of course, more than I do and its limitations and where it goes. Is this something to be scared about? So the uh, thing I, would, I do want to tell listeners, on the very first uh, episode of Series 3 of The Next Million Seconds, we have a man named Werner Vinge, who's a very famous writer, but also coined the idea of the singularity, which is something that gets touted around as a very scary concept. And I think people should go and listen to him because he's very reasonable and rational and he is not scary about this. He's like, look, there's different ways that we're learning to use computers to make us smarter, and here's some ways it can go. So I think at that level, there's less to worry about. But there's another level in which not so much that we should be worrying about, that we should be focusing our attention. So we're teaching computers how to have autonomy, do things on their own. We're also teaching them how to have agency, which is to make up decisions about the things that they want to do. The thing that we haven't worked out yet is something called assurance. How do we know that the computer is doing the things it's really supposed to be doing, that we designed it to do, and it's doing them well? Let me give you an example from history. So when we started building things out of steel, like bridges and whatnot, we actually weren't very good at it. And there's this very famous example in Britain of the Tay River Bridge in Scotland that fell over in 1842 with a train on it, killed a couple hundred people. Because we actually had no engineering practice about building things out of steel. And you think about that now in 2019. We know exactly how to build out of steel because we built a whole branch of engineering around it. That's what AI doesn't have, and that's why it's scaring us. So I'm working with people in Australia, in America, who are starting to build those core disciplines so that we can give these machines autonomy, we can give them agency, But how do we have some assurance? How do we have testability that they're going to act the way that we think they should act? And in the way that's Rules, in essence. Rules of conduct, in essence. It's rules, but then it's also, I guess, supposed to uh, finding out whether those rules are obeyed in practice. Because programming is rules, but you can write a computer program. That doesn't mean a computer's going to do it. Because there's bugs and all sorts of crazy things. Right. Right. So it's fascinating. So so then you're of the belief that as AI develops and and we get more used to engineering it like we did steel, that it doesn't concern you long term. Well, we are not doing, we are not being very diligent right now about that with AI. So this is another one of the themes of CES this year. It's very funny because I'm, I'm going through all of these demos last night and there is a kitchen faucet that you can talk to, you know? Mm. And I was like, why would you need to do that? And they said, well, you can ask it to pour you a single cup of water. I was like, okay, actually, that's really useful because then you don't need the measuring cup anymore, yep. right? Just, yep. Okay, single cup, and it knows how to measure it. That's great. But what if it doesn't know the difference between scalding water and cold water, right? What if it's a child? You know, and so there's all yes. of these ways of interacting with something that's voice-activated that you now start to think about, well, what's the context for that? How do we know that even though it's programmed to do certain things, that it's actually doing things that are okay or good or well? And that's what I'm saying is it's very easy to get into that zone very quickly when you start thinking about artificial intelligence sort of being in everything in the world. Wow. 
So, so, so I've never even considered it in that way. So you can design a program, but the fact of the matter is it can behave in a different way. So once you design it and you test it and you know it's behaving properly, can you count on that behavior ongoing? Okay, so, so let me throw another spanner in the works. If it's a fixed program, then yeah, probably it's going to do the same thing day in and day out. Like a mathematical program, per se. If it's a learning program and artificial intelligence is designed to learn, then that means that its behavior should change over time in response to everything that's going on around it. And this, again, is where we need to have some sense of assurance. So we want to know that even as it learns, even as it grows. So we need to know it grows up to be a good guy, not a bad guy. And this is why I think really one of the big areas in AI over the next 20 years is going to be how how do we parent? How do we be good parents? to these systems so that they grow up with good behaviors and good rules and make mistakes in good ways rather than bad ways. And we'll never get that perfectly right, but we should be trying to get it mostly right. But you feel we can control it? I I feel it's going to be a partnership, all right? And I think that that's the way we need to think of it because if we think of it as a controlling thing, we'll probably drive ourselves crazy because these systems will be learning all of the time and they'll be constantly throwing up things that are unexpected. And we're going to have to get comfortable with that unexpectedness. What happens when it knows more than we do? Well, I mean, I think you could make a really good argument that there are certain systems that kind of do that in some, well, no, Google Maps knows way more about traffic than you or I do right now, okay? And so so there are certain examples of systems that you can point at that already know way more than a human being, and we don't worry about that because we find them useful. It's what you're pointing at is what we call artificial general intelligence, which is an intelligence that's like a human but simply knows so much more. So when I was talking to Werner Vinci on my show, he put it like this. He said, Mark, look, you can always have a conversation with a goldfish. You're going to be doing it in goldfish language because that's what the goldfish understands. And yes, you know, you're only going to be using a small part of your brain to talk goldfish, Mm -hmm. but you'll talk goldfish. When these things come along, they'll be able to talk to us. They'll be talking to us in human language, but it will be a very small conversation from a much broader conversation that they're capable of having. So if we get things that are that much smarter than us, and it's hard to know when that's going to happen. As a futurist, I don't like to put any bets on that mm-hmm. because it's going to be hard for us to be able to tell what that's going to be like. And so it's just, it's just that's, that's just a hard question. But either way, the conversation they're having with us is going to be similar to a human having a conversation with a goldfish where we're only going to be getting a tiny little bit of that conversation. So they have to talk to us in simplistic terms that we can understand because it's far more advanced than we are. And you can take a look now. So they have a new chess playing, Alpha Zero, which is a Google chess playing program. And it just beat the pants off of um, Deep Blue, which was the former IBM champion. And Gary Kasparov, who's the human being who was beat by Deep Blue like 15 years ago, watched the game. And he thought he could see Alpha Zero toying with Deep Blue. Now, the question is, was he just projecting that onto the game? This is the best human chess player in the world. Is he projecting? Who knows? Maybe not. Maybe what he's seeing is with his little goldfish brain something that is so much better at chess than he is. Right. The capacity is, is surpasses him by far. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But this again, it's a very narrow thing. Chess playing computers is really interesting, but it's a very narrow domain of, of intelligence. So I have been uh, I'm a very techie guy. If it plugs into a wall or works on a battery, I gotta have one. So so I'm now in a process of automating my home. Yeah. You know, electrifying everything in my home. I am terrified 
of uh, uh, Alexa, Google Assistant. I mean, I am terrified by these things, and I see you're shaking your head pretty vigorously. Should I be? Well, this, I mean, this is a really interesting question because I don't have any Alexa devices in my house either. I do have Siri, and, and I've just, I guess I've made my peace with being able to talk to my phone, right? But I don't have any Google Assistant devices in the house. I don't have any Alexa devices in the house. And I agree with you that I share a certain amount of unease. You know what I think that unease mostly comes from is that you really don't know where that conversation is ending up. Like Apple is super clear that when you talk to Siri, the conversation basically just stays in the device. And I feel okay with that level of it. But with Alexa and with Google, it's just going out there. It's building a profile. I know that there's a page you can go to inside your Google profile that tells you everything you've ever said to the Google Assistant. You can see it line by line by line. So they're retaining it for something. Well, they're retaining it for quote-unquote training purposes and to help model how the kinds of questions you ask. They're, They're doing it to provide a better service to you, but that's always a two-edged sword because it's also something that they now know about you, something that describes you. And I feel like we all are negotiating that. How do we feel about that? Younger people seem to have much less difficulty with it, in part because these things are not weird to them, right? They say that technology is anything that was invented after you turned 20, right? (laughs) And and so in some sense, those voice interfaces aren't weird to them. But I think they are also naive in thinking about where that information lives and how that information is being used. I was talking to a woman who works in AI who's also the mother of a five-year-old. And she brought an Alexa into the house, and she realized that the five-year-old would scream, Alexa, pizza, when he wanted a pizza for dinner. So it wouldn't say please or thank you or anything like this. And she's like, I don't want my five-year-old talking like this. I don't want my five-year-old to have an example of that in the house that's rewarded because a pizza shows up. (laughs) And so she's now thinking about, well, not just that we have this voice interface in the house, but how do we make this voice interface then obey those human rules that you'd want for good parenting? If you felt like you had a good parenting relationship with Alexa, you'd probably feel a lot more comfortable about having it in the house. So do you think in ways that the technology is getting ahead of our ability to manage it at times? I don't think it's getting ahead of our ability to manage it. I think it's getting ahead of our interest in managing it. That's the problem. Oh, that's powerful. Yeah. yeah. So, so, it, so, so the desire to management, manage it is not as great as the desire to grow it. You know, Facebook can pl- always gets caught out for leaking information this way and that way, and then they have this really complicated page of security settings, and someone will ding them, and they'll simplify a few things. And it's because there's all of these settings because they're using all this information in all of these different yeah. ways, and everyone's like, eh, whatever. It just goes into the too hard bin. And I feel as though we need to start to think about how we design all of these systems so that we never have a too hard bin moment with them, that they always meet us where we want and they can engage us in a human conversation about what we're doing with them and what the, what the value of that is and then also what the cost of that conversation is. Yeah, and they can't really achieve those objectives without tracking us and understanding what we do and how we do it and when we do it. So really what scares us could be a very noble mission on their part, that in essence they're developing a product to serve us better. That's their argument. Well, it it, it is their argument. One of my friends 
in fact, just on this trip in America, took me aside, and he's been working in this space as long as I have. He's like, Mark, look, at if we keep on going this way, in another five years, there will essentially be five or six companies that are, because they control the voice interfaces, that are the gateways to all commerce. And then unless you're doing a deal with Amazon or with Apple or with Google or with Alibaba, whoever it is, you will not be able to sell anything. Because there's not going to be any way for you to get to a consumer because the consumers are all just going to be talking to devices and things will be showing up. And so you do have to wonder if you really close things down like that and you haven't asked the questions about who has access, who is it benefiting, where is it going, then you can end up in a bad place. Last week when I was on Fox Business, uh, Facebook got in trouble again. Uh, uh, That's an old story. It's an old story, right? So I emphasize again. And I had a couple of attorneys on. And we were talking about the fact that every Tuesday morning in Facebook, there's a group of people that have breakfast together and review their policies with regard to our free speech on their platform. And that they've created about 1,400 pages of policies that somehow got passed to the New York Times covertly. The New York Times then went through some of these 1,400 pages. They found errors like crazy, you know, really stepping on rights. And so I asked the, the, the team of attorneys that I was with, you know, how can a published document not be allowed to be censored, yeah. but yet Facebook, which isn't defined as published content, yeah. can be? And it really opened up an entire slippery slope of, you know, digital content and censoring and filtering and altering that. What do you think about this? How do we solve this problem? (laughs) So the thing is, this is a human problem. This is not a computer problem, right? Sure is. And it really has to do with how do we want to construct our relationships with one another with the fact that there's this mix of being in the real world and this mix of digital connection between us. And digital connection is an amplifier. So it allows us to talk to 100,000 people on the podcast or it allows us to talk to someone on the other side of the world. Whereas face-to-face, we have you know, literally millions of years of both evolution and then tens of thousands of years in culture that regulate how we do this. And if it goes wrong, we end up in front of a judge. <laughs> and, and, and cultures have their own sets of rules for what's allowed in public and what's allowed in private and all of this. And if we're handing all of that over to Facebook, or we're just saying, Facebook, this is your problem. And it's not even that. It's that Facebook created a space for public conversation and then decided that they were going to regulate it rather than saying, oh, my goodness, we've created the space for public conversation. It is now up to all of us as co-participants in that conversation to regulate it, which is, I think, their fundamental mistake, Mm -hmm. that they thought that they should be doing this. And there's no human way. I mean, this is why this document is 1,400 pages. You can't do it. And who are they to censor us? And who are these people? And it's some kind of censorship committee, if you will, in essence. What they're trying to do is they're basically trying to deal with complaints, right? It's essentially like a complaint review process. And every time a complaint passes through, a new page ends up on this document. That's and, what and, it is. And I'm told there's 7,000 people around the country that are monitoring this in real time. And it's fascinating yeah. how, how uh, uh, our laws aren't really defining this content in ways that it should be. And in that case, you know, I found the conclusion was that our laws have to catch up with this and that our rights need to be protected in a way. But yet somebody can't post something on Facebook that causes a riot and causes somebody to die uh, 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 with bad intent either. It's a really slippery slope. It's a very tough issue. It's a really tough issue because, again, we're talking about how human beings are related. We're not really talking about corporations, even though Facebook is in there trying to play the cop because – 
you know, in some sense, their economic well-being and the well-being of their stock price is also based on how well they can handle all of these different situations when people get together. Well, you know, this is why we have this is why we have laws. This is why we have courts. Facebook works across jurisdictions. It works across nations, and so people are constantly butting heads without any of the protective shield of all of the norms that we have when we pr- right. approach in the flesh. And and so in some ways, Facebook is going to a place no one's ever gone before. But I think their mistake was that they thought that somehow they could solve the problem. They can't solve this problem. This is a problem all of us have to solve. And I completely agree with you. We need to build regulations. And I think the the best basis for regulation is always self-regulation. Yep. When that fails, then of course you, you turn to the law and you turn to the courts. Absolutely. But let's start with self-regulation. Let's think about how do we want to behave? How do we want to connect? What are the spaces that we want to create? What are, what works for us? And use those as a basis. And, and keeping in mind that there's a lot of diversity and what works over here is going to be different than what was over here, but we can agree to certain things. And, and communities can police within that community yes. quite well. Yes. And they have their own parameters in each different community. Yes. Where one would allow something that another would not, for example. Exactly. So when we talk about um, television and content for a moment, yep. you know I'm in a television business. I have a yep. television show. My show hits about 91 million people wow. a year. Big reach, and, and it's on marathons, and it repeats all the time. You know, today in a television business, and I'm involved in a number of shows as a producer, too, it's a completely different world because of computers and distribution platforms. And they say in one breath today, if you have great content, you can always find a place for it because there's so many outlets. But getting eyeballs isn't easy with all of these outlets. There has been a, a merger of technology and entertainment that is unlike anything I've seen these past few years. And let me give you an example, and then I'm going to ask you to expound on it. Uh, Netflix now has a concept that they're working called called branching narrative. And branching narrative is really exciting. So I have to make a movie. I have to produce five different ends to that movie or four different ends. And then while you're watching that movie, you can interact in real time. And I can say, I want Mark to buy a Mercedes Benz or I want Mark to buy a Chevrolet. And, and the narrative goes in the direction that we want it to. That's pretty powerful. It has a big cost of production. Yes. And then, of course, we have technology. It allows people to produce things at home that they never could before. Yep. So the cost of producing content is way down. Yep. The amount of places to sell it and distribute it are way up. Yep. Types of content is through the roof. Yep. Where does this all go? So, I mean, we're seeing this is the continuation of a trend that's been going on probably since around the middle 1990s when, you know, audio and video production could be done on a on a normal laptop, right? Yep. Macintosh, but yep. other kinds of laptops. And there was a real democratic revolution around shooting with digital video, mixing, and being able to release but here's the thing, and, and, and you know, I, I should say I founded two graduate programs at universities, one here, so USC Cinema School, which is the best cinema school in the yep. world. I founded their program in this, and then I went over and did this uh, in Australia, and this is the reason that I live in Australia now. Although all of that production stuff got cheaper, it didn't any easier to write a good story sure isn't. or, you know, to build a beautiful set or to shoot a beautiful scene. I mean, you can do it with a cheaper camera, but you still are going to need a cinematographer. You got to right. You got to tell the story. It's got to be pretty, of course. All of the music. And, and people, I think, you know, we see 
good films, we see bad films, we see mediocre films. I always think a good film is a miracle because it means everything went right. Yeah. Right? And it's not like, easy. It's not easy. And, and so I have an enormous sort of sympathy when I see a film that's basically a masterpiece but flawed. You know, some of my favorite films are flawed masterpieces because I know how hard it would be to get it perfectly right. But they came so close. They came, they, <laughs> and, and, and they tried. And a lot of films, you're like, why are you even trying? Right. At least they went for it. They, they absolutely went for it. But I think there's an enormous scope. And the area where this is most visible is on YouTube, right? Oh, YouTube yeah. is, you know, we think Netflix is kind of the behemoth of entertainment. And it is in some ways. But in fact, it's YouTube. YouTube. You, well, you, and, and the present. I was sitting with a two-and-a-half-year-old the other morning as mommy was running around cleaning up the house and the two and a half year old had found the unboxing channel where kids just unbox toys all day long and he was just in heaven and I'm like how does this two and a half year old even know this YouTube exists but two and a half year olds know this these days and they know that there's this endless river of content that will just give her the one thing and after another thing after another thing and I'm watching these videos these videos are incredibly well produced you know presumably done on relatively low end equipment but still well shot well edited all of this and so I think the revolution you're talking about is already there and that YouTube represents what that looks like and so there is a channel for a two and a half year old to watch unboxing videos or a 30 year old to watch cat videos or whatever it is or a 90 year old to learn about a no salt diet yes it's all there absolutely it's all absolutely there and so that that's what that world has become. Is that a world of monetization in other words is that a world of business or is that simply a world of creatives sharing the interesting thing is that that mix is now much more rich than it was a billion seconds ago, where it was really all about professionals a billion seconds ago. Now there's this real mix between people who are incredibly well-paid, people who are paid enough, people who are paid a little, and people who are doing it because they want to. And it's also a great ground for, for, for cultivating talent and for people to go into that space. So we talked about cars and the future cars going electronic. We talked about uh, uh, um, computers and privacy. We talked about home automation. Where do you see the biggest, and this is an unfair question, mm. but I'm gonna, where do you see the biggest leaps the next couple of years? So I'm pretty convinced now that there is an untapped revolution in wellness. So this past year, in 2018, I lost 40 pounds. And everyone's like, oh, my God, how did you do it? I was like, diet and exercise. But here's, here's, here's the secret, all right? I got an app. There's an app called My Fitness Pal. Everyone's got it. It's a billion of them. And I just kept the food diary because there's billions of or There's millions of items in it. You can scan barcodes. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to keep the calories going in. And then I got myself a Fitbit, and I can keep the calories going out. And that's like keeping a budget. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, and I'm willing to do that work, but actually that, all that should just be happening kind of behind the scenes, you know, except maybe I should be pointing my smartphone camera at my meals occasionally so mm-hmm. it can read how many calories I'm taking in. And then I should just be getting little sort of nudges all the time. It's like, oh, you know, maybe you want to eat a little less today. Maybe you want to run a little bit more, whatever it is. But it's just that kind of, it's a conversation. It's not this, oh my God, we're going to put you on a regime or make it feel really hard or anything like that. So in essence, build it into the background of your life. So it's coaching you as you go. Make it a conversation, right? And make it part of the rich conversation of all of our lives. There's a big thing at CS this year that we were seeing yesterday. There's a lot of things to help you sleep better because people aren't sleeping well anymore. Yeah. And that's that's somewhat about busyness. And Reed Hastings has already said that his his biggest competitor isn't Disney; it's sleep. Well, I, I could see that, right? But you know, I have a problem with sleep, and I've you know, 
bought yeah. a number of these apps. Calm is one is yeah. an example one that, that you know yeah. they're effective and they're working. So you see a big boom in wellness, which makes an awful lot of sense. I feel like there's enough pieces that can be brought together now because the smartwatch, as it turns out, was the missing element. You know, we had the smartphone, that's fine, but the smartwatch is the thing that's actually measuring our activity. Right. And, and we didn't know what smartwatches were for when they came out. They're kind of like, well, what is it? And all, we're now all clear. It's actually really about your wellness and your activity. Because it can track your body functions, in essence. It, tra- it tracks your body. I mean, the, the high-end ones can actually track your heartbeat so that yeah. if you have an arrhythmia or something like that, it'll do all of that. But it's now around taking that and then using those pieces to build, again, an AI model of you. So it's not wow. a Facebook model. It's your model of you and your wellness. And that's always going to be – it's not going to be – it's not trying to lock you into something. It's just trying to keep you sort of all the pieces running well enough in, because balance is flexible. Balance changes. You know, are you traveling a lot? Are you busy? Are you getting enough sleep? It's all of those things. And I feel like a lot of that is going to happen because we don't lack willpower. We lack awareness, and we're going to build the new tools to help us with that awareness. That's very astute. I'm that way. Make me aware of it, and I'll change my behavior. Yeah. But sometimes I don't fight enough to be aware. It's an excuse yeah. when you're not aware. Yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> you run absolutely. out of that excuse when you're aware. Uh, uh, look at absolutely. Uh, you know, there are a lot of things that we weren't aware of that we're aware of now. Like we're aware, you know, how much carbon produces. Right, we're aware of how much sun we're getting. You know, there's an entire generation of Australians who all have melanomas and wrinkled skin because they didn't think about the fact that we're running around in, in. We have you know really really high UV levels in Australia, and the new generation doesn't do that. So awareness can clearly change, and I feel as though I'm the leading edge of Generation X. We're just starting to enter sort of serious middle age. There's going to come a reckoning, and we're all going to be thinking about well, what does our next billion seconds look like? How can we be well in that? I was reading a great article. That comment of awareness is, is, is so astute. I was reading an article that when we were young, 36% of high school students smoked cigarettes. Oh, yeah. Today it's about 9%. Yeah. And that all comes back to awareness yeah. and education and knowledge. Yeah. So, so, so I guess through, through the wellness uh, uh, programs and systems that you're talking about, we can also introduce wellness at a young age. Where better habits are created, yes. right, and and they're more aware of the consequences of their behavior at a younger age. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you can see this in the way we regard sunlight in Australia. You know that all school kids go out and they're wearing hats, but with a back flap, so that even the neck's not getting. And and they they're taught from a very young age how to be in sunshine. And and you can see that that will carry through all their lives. And again, Australia has the lowest smoking rate in the world because we've taxed cigarettes. A pack of cigarettes is about thirty dollars in Australia now, and the pack is covered with literal pictures of cancers. <laughs> That'll right. work. So it's so there's nothing there's nothing about it that's appealing at all, and it's driven down to the basically the lowest rate in the world. And you know, will we ever be able to eliminate smoking? No, no. And, and you accept that, but you want to make it as unappealing as possible. Yeah, and just make people as aware of yeah. the consequences of it. You're a fascinating guy, Mark. Thank and, you. And when I look at all the things that you've done, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm really good in my hospitality space. I rip it apart. I analyze it. I'm a nutcase. You're that way in the tech space. You're a pretty passionate guy. So m- my last question for you, yeah. what are you really passionate about now? What are you waking up in the morning and what excites you? You've done so many things that have touched all of our lives. Yeah. What's next for you? 
So, you know, I think if you'd asked this, I'm on this long tour in America now and gathering up all these interviews for for the next billion seconds. And if you'd asked me at the beginning of this, I would have given you a different answer. And in fact, you actually got my answer when I was talking about wellness because I'm now seeing both all of my friends getting older, but also our parents are all going into care of various types. And I'm seeing a generation who didn't think about this sort of thing and the decisions are now being made for them because they can't, because they've kind of lost that space. And I'm actually getting quite passionate about let's make, and and I have friends in Australia who are totally behind this as well, let's make growing old as fantastic and amazing as it should be. Yes. Right? Yes. I feel really passionate about this in part because I can see myself growing older, but also because in part I can see us as this is a part of a shift that we can all make together. And if we get this right, then we've also done this right for our kids for every generation after this. That's powerful. So that's quality of life, length of life. Well, I mean, it's I, th- I think it's it's around life, longevity, and liveliness, right? It's you know how much do you really enjoy living? Right. That's that's powerful. You know, I, I love when Tony Robbins says to him, uh, somebody says you're boring. Life is boring. He goes, no, life isn't boring. You're boring, <laughs> right? So so again, awareness, engage people more in life. So technology is not to be feared. AI is not to be feared. The fact is that do we have the right stewards leading this process for us? You don't want people who are only in it for the money. This is the thing. And the problem is the billionaire is going to keep his eye on the billions just because he's a billionaire or or she's a billionaire. That's that's how they got the billions. You want to have a whole bunch of voices. One of the things we know is diversity works really well in a boardroom, but it also works really well when you're talking to technology. So who's using it? Why are they using it? How are they using it? And these are a lot of questions we don't ask. Or how are they misusing it? What can we learn? You want to you know, hand a technology to a kid and they're going to break it in a hundred interesting ways. Learn from that. So I think there's a lot of ways that we can think about how to use technology and how to not overuse it. But it requires us to have, I guess, a bit of of time, of consideration. It means we need to have enough sleep. We need to be taking care of ourselves. Because if we can't take care of ourselves, and we're talking about now parenting a new generation of machines that are learning, we're not going to have the energy left over to help them be the best they can. Wow, powerful. So you see the uh, uh, future of machines more linked to our future and closer to our day-to-day lives than ever as we go forward. If we get it right, then that's a positive relationship. If we don't get it right, then that's not a positive relationship. Yeah. When you walk through CES and you walk around today, do you sense we're getting it right right now? So two years ago when I was walking around CES, I was sure we were not. I feel as though the conversation around this is now becoming a much bigger thing. There are tracks in CES about AI and the ethics of AI and all of this. So it feels like the most important thing is that we're having that conversation. And that's that pe- people are getting in the loop on that. That's good to hear. So with the right stewardship, technology will always be closer to us and nothing to be feared of. Hopefully. Hopefully. It's been a pleasure having you, buddy. It's been a pleasure, What, what a great guest. I'd love to talk to you again sometime. Please. When you come back next year for CES, can we get together again? Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you. Mark Pesci, one of the greatest, I think, minds in, in the technical space and the host of the new billion, next billion seconds podcast right here in the Podcast One Network. Mark, it was a pleasure. Have a great show. All right. Thank you. We'll be right back with my favorite part of the show, listener calls. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. 
If you like my show, you're going to love the Laura Ingram Show podcast on Podcast One. Join Laura as she takes on politics and pop culture with some hard-hitting guests and takes your calls. Download the Laura Ingram Show podcast every week right here on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Shut it down! All right, John, let's get into these audience callers. First up, we have James, who is a college student, and he's looking for leadership advice, and he has a couple other questions for you. Hey, James, nice to meet you, buddy. Nice to meet you, too, John. Big fan. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a senior in college, one semester away from, from graduation, and I was looking to get some insights into uh, leadership from you, and uh, as well as some insights into your uh, recon and infiltration type stuff that you do on bar rescue. Um, so in your experience, have you noticed common themes of good leaders and does it depend on what business they're in? For example, if they're in politics, if they're in the food industry, sports, I know you're, uh, owner of the, the Vegas Golden Knights, or if they're in the finance, are there common themes that kind of run true through all of them or does it depend? You know, I, I, and I argue with this about some other people, but I have a very strong opinion on leadership. I don't believe leaders are created. I believe that they're born. And I believe that, you know, the Pied Piper, nobody ever talks about that he was a great musician, but it was his personality and his energy. Great entrepreneurs, great leaders will walk you off a cliff and you'll follow them, <laughs> right? Because you believe in them so much personally. So to me, leadership is much more about the individual, the confidence you have in that individual, the trust that you have in that individual's attitude and agenda back towards you. So leaders, I believe, are defined when people say to themselves, there's a benefit for me if I follow him. So as a leader, you have to make everyone around you believe that. They have to truly believe that they win by following you. If they don't believe that, you're not a leader. So you can't do that with words. Uh, uh, James, you know, you, you got to do that with action. And, and, you know, there's all these cliches, manage by example, don't do anything you wouldn't ask somebody, you wouldn't do yourself, ask somebody to do something you wouldn't do yourself. There's all these things. But at the end of the day, the essence of leadership is causing the people around you to want to follow you because it's in their best interest. And let me expound on that for a second, if I can, James. What's in your best interest? Learning. If you can learn working for me, that's in your best interest. Grow. That's in your best interest. Meet new people in your best interest. Do new projects and broaden your experiences and your exposure. That's in your best interest. Work for someone who treats you with respect. That's in your best interest. If the growth is taken away, if the opportunity is taken away, if the learning is taken away, then there's not a lot in it for you to follow me anymore. So leadership is defined by the other person. And when a leader tries to define it, then they're not a leader. And uh, 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 leaders, in my view, bubble up uh, 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 based upon who they are. Uh, uh, they don't get there based on performance always. What do you think about that? Yeah, that, that was, uh, that's pretty interesting. And I'm definitely going to have to think about that um, going forward. And it's the same with a politician think, if you think about it. If you say to yourself, boy, there's a lot in it for me if I vote for that guy, right? I feel a benefit to me by following him. Then you do. Uh, so it's always a very personal choice. So if you want to be a great leader, uh, uh, make the people around you see benefit to them in your leadership. Anyway, let's go to the next one. 
All right, thanks. Thanks for that. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm just going to segment into uh, your TV show, Bar Rescue, and kind of you know, one of uh, my favorite parts is the when you send in your your in, uh, recon agents, you know, yeah. to go and infiltrate the bar and kind of uh, get um, get a feel for what's going on before you head in there and well, more often than not, shut it down. But uh, so, what do you when they when you send them in? Are they are they looking for anything in particular? You send them in with pretty objective point of view just kind of go and see what's going on and obviously you're monitoring you know what i always tell them beforehand and this is a a bar rescue and you know i promise you this on my mother's grave because i hate when people say the show oh it's scripted it's fake and anybody who says that has no idea what the hell they're talking about it's all real so i tell the recon people listen if something is good say so if it's bad say so but if it's bad show me you know, if it's dry, crack it in half with your hands so we see it. If it's greasy, squeeze it so we see the grease on your fingers. Show us what it's like in there. And then I'll send them in. And you'll notice that there's varying degrees of anger and frustration. What really gets me mad is irresponsibility, not mistakes. I understand that you can overcook a hamburger. You know, I mean, that's, that's an honest mistake. I understand you can undercook it. I understand that somebody can forget to put a slice of pickle on one. and that, Those are mistakes. But when somebody doesn't refrigerate something, when somebody is irresponsible, when somebody is neglectful and potentially gets somebody sick, that's when I go nuts. So, you know, there's, there's an element in all business where mistakes are one thing. Choices are another. You trip and fall, that's a mistake, right? But if you choose to jump across something and fall as a result of it, well, that was a choice. So I get frustrated and angry at bad choices far more than mistakes. And when I'm in that recon mode, that's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for the mistakes that they're making. I'm looking for the choices that they're making. And when those choices get irresponsible, can get somebody sick, uh, 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 or, or otherwise affect somebody in a negative sense, that's when I get furious because bad choices you're responsible for. Mistakes you can sort of excuse away sometimes. Make sense? Yeah, I appreciate you shedding some light onto that. Um, and, it, and it kind of, uh, it, it seems as though there's blatant disregard for what, what you should do. You know, you mentioned not refrigerating food or, you know, some. I remember there was one episode where the guy, the whole freezer had a, had fiberglass in it and you know that that kind of that kind of um i guess you could you know just lack of care for and that's a choice they walked by that every day and did nothing about it that is outrageous especially when you consider the fiberglass could hurt you uh, as a customer that's the stuff that infuriates me so you know when an owner uh, 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 is irresponsible by choice to his employees or to his customers that's when i go over the top and it happens to employees too james right you know the irresponsibility of the owner affects the employees as well and you know i, I just uh, am one who you know how dare you open a business how dare you hire people how dare you bring people into your business and then make choices that are not in their best interest? That's outrageous to me, and that's when I get angry. Yeah, one one last thing, if you don't mind. Um, one of my favorite parts of the show is uh, your invention of the butt funnel. Yes. I just like to know how'd you thought, how'd you think of it, and why you did, why you know obviously there's science behind it, but I want to kind of know how you came up with the 30 inches apart. Sure. You know, a butt funnel is, and people laugh at the term, but it's really, to me, it's an architectural term that we created 30, 35 years ago. And the logic was we're sitting and we're watching uh, nightclubs and we're watching people leave the dance floor. 
And we realized that, you know, there's tight areas of every, every, every business. There's, you know, the hallway into the bathroom where people bump into each other. There's these tight, congested areas. And in those areas, you know, people tend to interact more with each other. So, you know, when I put you really close to somebody, there's a much greater chance that your eyes are going to meet. You might start talking to him or her. And the whole point of a bar is interaction, right? You can drink at home, James. You can watch anything you want at home. You can listen to anything you want at home. You can bring somebody over and you can dance at home if you want. The one thing you can't get at home is interaction. And social interaction is the lifeblood of the bar and the nightclub industry. So the purpose of the butt funnel was to increase social interaction and get people to rub together. So when I take two people that are approaching the dance floor and there's two drink rails and there's an opening between those drink rails that's about 30 inches wide, it causes them to both go in at the same time. 36 inches wide means we can slide through and, and have you know, probably a foot of distance between us. At 30 inches, you're almost rubbing up against each other. 24 inches was too narrow. At 24 inches, you're not going to go. You're going to wait for the other guy to go through first before you do, or the other girl to go through first before you do. So the butt funnel is 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 a width that encourages two people to enter at the same time. And now you're approaching the butt funnel, James. And let's say there's a beautiful girl walking up to the dance floor. And let's say you know what? I want to go through the. the I want to meet that girl. So you time it being as creative as you are, James, you time it so that you enter the butt funnel at the same time she does. At that moment in time, one of two things is going to happen, James. Either she's going to go through the butt funnel face-to-face with you, or she's going to take a look at you and spin around the other way, and she's going to go to -to (laughs) ass-to-face. But in that moment, there's an interaction that happens where you can smile at her, you can say, excuse me, you can say hello, you can introduce yourself, and that's the whole point of the butt funnel and the width was uh, picking the width that would cause two people to enter it at the same time uh, uh, and still have some physical contact. And there you go. Bob, that's John, the butt that's good, yeah, that's a great answer. It goes to prove why you're in the nightclub hall of fame. Congrats on that, by the way. Uh, thank you, buddy. It was nice to talk to you. Have a great new year, James. All right, John, we have Hi. Zariah, and she is an aspiring entrepreneur. Hi, Zariah. Nice to talk with you. Hello. Hello, Mr. Taffler. I'm so grateful for this opportunity. Thank you for calling me oh my pleasure call me john okay so you i understand that you and your family are looking at opening a restaurant in your town my husband and i are wanting to open in an entertainment center that has a full restaurant and bar ah so define entertainment center for me what's going to be there what we're we're looking at having is um some bowling lanes Laser tag, arcade, and a full restaurant and bar. Wow, that's terrific! So, so, so you're really uh, are venturing into a significant size space and investment. Uh, uh, that's an awful yes. lot of dollars. When are you guys planning on opening? What's your opening date? Yes. Well, um, we were hoping sometime this year, as soon as we can come up with all the capital that we need. The facility is about thirty-five thousand square feet, and um, and we're very, very excited about about getting started. We, we have come up with a few um, obstacles in the way, so that's, that's been a little bit hard, but we're, we're definitely pushing hard trying to get this going. Well, let me uh, share with you just a couple of pitfalls and things to look out for. First of all, okay. for, for your budgets to work in an entertainment venue like that, we have laser tag, a game room, so, some bowling lanes, you know, a restaurant, a little bar, a sports bar, something in it. You have to yes. generate 10 times the rent in revenue every month. That's the way the numbers work in that business. 
So if your rent is five thousand a month, you got to do fifty thousand a month in sales. If your rent is ten, you got to do hundred thousand a month in sales. So always look at what your rent cost is, and then say to yourself, okay, I must achieve ten times that in sales. So let's say it's ten thousand dollars for a moment. So you have to do a okay. hundred thousand dollars a month in sales. What the heck does that mean? So if I say to myself, well, the average person is going to spend twelve dollars every time they come between bowling, eating, blah, blah, blah. And let's say that's the number that I determined is a, is a reasonable conservative spend per person. Well, I now take that $12, divide it into $100,000 a month, and I come up with the amount of bodies that I must attract every month in order to hit my number. See, numbers don't mean okay. anything if we don't attach bodies to them. So now if you know, okay, I need 6,000 visits a month at this property to be profitable. Now you can start to say to yourself, okay, where do we get 6,000 people from? How do we generate 6,000 people? How do we do it in the middle of the week? How do we do it on weekends? So you got to back into your business with a complete understanding of how many bodies it takes every month for you to break even and become profitable. That's really, really important. The next, okay. and if, if you can't translate it into numbers of bodies... Because if, if you live in a pretty small town, which you said you did in a growing city, if I told you how to attract 2,000 people a month, you'd probably say, piece of cake, John. But if I told you how to attract 20,000 people a month, you might say, oh, no, that, that scares the hell out of me. You need to know that. Makes sense in a, okay. in a body count sense. The other thing that you need to know that's really important is that, is that, that it's a business of variable and, and not controllable costs. Food cost labor cost and beverage cost, those three things are going to equal, mm-hmm. give or take, 70% of your revenue. So if you don't manage labor costs by the hour, you're not going to make money. If you don't manage your, 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 your food costs and your beverage costs flawlessly, you don't make money. So this is a really tough business with regard to managing those things. So here's my last point that I want to leave you with. If you know that you need X amount of people a month and you're comfortable with that number, and you know that you have to manage beverage costs and, and food costs. Your recipes must be really consistent and costed out. Your drinks must be consistent and costed out so you know you're making your profit on everything. The next issue becomes, have you ever run a place like this before? Have you? Um, not exactly like this. No, we have a small business now, but it's not nearly as, okay. as expensive as this. So you need to pl- plan that you're going to make mistakes. Right, You need to plan that you're not going to open perfectly, that there's going to be a bump or two on a road. It might take a few months before people start coming. So you have to have reserves. And this is the most right. powerful thing that I'm going to leave you with, Soraya, and I hope this is really helpful. I have seen so many businesses like the one you're going to open close when they could have been successful. And they close because they ran out of money before they could become profitable. And that's the worst of all. Imagine if you open... And you do pretty good revenue your first month, but you're not good at controlling costs. You lose 15 grand your first month. And your second month, you lose six grand, seven grand. And your third month, you lose two grand, and then you go out of business. But your fourth month, you would have made four grand. You were on your way. So you have to have the money to protect you in the, in the case of mistakes. You must be able to buy the time to figure out your cost management, fix your recipes, get your marketing in place. If this one doesn't work, you got to try that one. Please make sure that you have enough money to run for 90 days of losses. Okay. So that's the biggest obstacle. It's like how do 
aspiring entrepreneurs like us that don't have thousands of hundreds of dollars in the bank reach that top of the mountain of opening up a business like this? Well, it's, it, you have to raise a capital for it. In essence, what you're saying to me is, John, how do we raise the money? Right. Well, how much money is it? I mean, 35,000 square feet, you're probably looking at a uh, two to two and a half million dollar cost to open the thing. I'm guessing unless the bowling lanes and everything are already there. No, it's actually, you know, we're going to pretty much, you know, start fr- from scratch. And the estimated uh, projected cost for the whole project is about $4 million almost. Yep. So we need to come up for uh, about 800000 to be able to have the 20% to go to the SBA and yep. and be able to get the rest. So, so there's a couple of ways that you can structure loans like that that can be very effective. Many years ago, Hard Rock had a model that they used for investment that was really very powerful. And what they did is they'd say, okay, John, if you put up $100,000, <clears> you're not buying equity in the business. You're buying a, a, a loan. And what we will do is 80% of all the profits <clears throat> come to you as the loan holder first before we take a dime. So <clears throat> 80% of the profits come to you until all the debt is paid. Once the debt is paid, 80% of the profits come to us, and you get 20% for life. It's a very powerful way to make an investment, and here's why. What you don't want to do is you don't want to get into a note that is a fixed payment of ten, twelve, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 a month. What happens if you have a bad month and you can't make that payment and now you're in default? You want to find investors for that $800,000 that are comfortable saying, you know what, I'll take 50% of the cash flow until my note is paid. And that means that there's no minimum payment. Whatever 50% of your cash flow is that month, they get. If it's $2, mm-hmm. that's what they get. If it's $25,000, that's what they get. But you're never in default with a loan like that. You see what I mean? Right. So yes. you want to really structure a loan like that privately. So there's a couple ways that you can do it. One, you can tell people that these are notes to the company. Uh, uh, you have a priority return. 80% of all the cash flow goes to you as a note holder until the notes are paid off in full. And then you receive 20% of the business for life. Uh, uh, look at a structure like that because it's not equity. The problem with an equity deal is, A, I have greater tax consequences than a loan deal. B, with an equity deal uh, uh, like that, I could have cash calls. The business could be worth less, and I could be responsible for tax obligations and stuff. As a debtor, I'm not. So you can insulate me from the negative aspect being an investor by not making it equity, making it a note. And then, you know, you're protecting me by saying I get 80% of the profits until it's done. So you're saying to me, I believe so much in this, John, that I'm only going to take 20% of the profits until you're paid. Well, that's pretty powerful. And a structure like that might be able to help you a lot. That's awesome. Are you, are you making us a deal? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't making a deal, but, but uh, 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 you know, uh, we're talking about doing some type of an investment show. And, and if we do, right. then, then I would make those deals. But, you know... Uh, 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 Think about this. You're $800,000 away from your dream coming true. There are people out there that will jump on your dream, and it will become their dream too. Mm -hmm. Those are the kind of investors you want to find initially. So do talk to family. Do talk to friends. Don't be scared of that. As long as the debt is structured properly that you don't default on it, then it can be a very positive experience for everyone. The trick is don't be shy to ask even the people that are closest to you. 50 here, 25 there goes a long way. One last thing which I've done, which is sort of fun. 
I've actually created okay. a scenario where if you invest $100,000 in my business, you get a gift card for $10,000, and you can use 1000 a month. Right. So, so there's a, a bit of a return that they get, the gift card. So give me $25,000, i will give you ten back in a gift card. Now, why would I do that? Well, first of all, $5 in revenue only costs me $1. So when you come in and use your gift card, you know, I'm charging you $5 for what cost me a dollar. Make sense? Yeah. So sometimes I've sold advanced credits on gift cards to raise money to open a business. So Mm -hmm. be creative in ways like that. And my guess is with your enthusiasm, you'll find it. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much for your feedback. I really appreciate that. My pleasure. really helped a lot. And good luck. And Happy New Year. Thank you very much. So please, if you're opening a new business, if you've got a strategy or a plan and you want to be challenged, send a note to me at podcast at johntaffer.com. That's podcast at johntaffer.com. And you can be on the podcast with me, and I hope you do, because there's nothing I like more than your calls. Well, it was great to have Mark Peschke here this week. You know, when you think about technology and whether it's going to manage us or we're going to manage it, it's both amazing but scary. And I guess the next few years are going to tell what direction that's going to take. Well, next week, I have Jedediah Bila, who you might know from The View, Fox News, MSNBC, CNBC. And that's going to be a great interview. I'm really looking forward to having her here. And that does it for this week. I'll talk to you next week on No Excuses. Corey, I don't ask for many favors, do I? No. Well, I think this is an important one. I need you to hit subscribe at Apple Podcasts, go to podcastone.com or the Podcast One app, and you'll get your new episodes of No Excuses every Tuesday morning. Why wouldn't you do that, Corey? I don't know. Neither do I. So go do it. Thanks for listening to No Excuses with John Taffer on Podcast One. Download new episodes every Tuesday here on podcastone.com, the Podcast One app, and at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review. 